Good morning, World of Life. It's good to be with you guys. But uh, we are continuing our series in Philippians. We are in our seventh week of that series. And so if you want to open with me to Philippians chapter 1. I know you're thinking, so long in one chapter. Well, fret not or don't, don't get scared. Today we are finishing chapter 1. And then from next week on, we'll see what God does from there on. Chapter 1 next week. <laughs> A summary. But uh, so far, in chapter 1, Paul has just been super encouraging for 26 verses. He has not stopped sharing his love, his prayers, and lifting the eyes of the Philippians to see how his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. We've been showered with Paul's love for the Philippians to the point where I'm inclined to say that the church of Philippi was probably Paul's favorite people. And and well of life. And so far, for 26 verses, Paul has not made a single command or challenge, which is unlike Paul when we read his other letters. And I know for all the achievers in the room, my wife included in that, for the last six weeks, you're like, just tell me what to do. I need a challenge. I need some sort of command so that I know what to do. Well, we're about to read Paul's first challenge in the book of Philippians and you've been waiting for it, it is a challenge that will keep you busy, full, attentive for a lifetime. If you want to open with me to chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to dun, 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 suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now when we read this part of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, there's something there in the beginning where we just read right past it, but it's actually something that would have hit the Philippians dead in their tracks and would have caught their attention in a way of saying, oh my goodness, did Paul just say that? You can actually picture the Philippians sitting like this, excited to hear Paul's letter read out to them. And he says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it would have been a pin drop moment. And people would have begun to whisper and leaning over. And anxiety would have begun to rest on everyone's hearts. And they would have looked at each other and said, seriously, did Paul just say that? Oh my goodness, did Paul just drop that on us? This moment is much bigger than we realize, and we need to unpack this. But when we unpack it, it's, it's difficult to gain insight into a text unless we have, unless we, um, don't, if we don't have context, it's very difficult. So if you go through the book of Philippians, you need to understand its context. There is this little booklet that Well of Life put together. It's quite amazing if I must say so. It's a contribution from the staff and the elders. 
And on page three is a title called, Who is the Audience of This Letter? And it gives us some great context from here. I'm not going to read it for us. I'll paraphrase. But it points back to Acts 16, when Paul wrote, when Paul first uh, was in Philippi, we see that Philippi prided itself on Roman citizenship. They said to Paul, these Jewish men are advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The Philippians saw themselves as Roman citizens. And so we notice there is a Philippian pride in the fact that they are a Roman city. And so our context is that at the time of Acts 16, and while Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, Philippi prided itself on its citizenship and status as a Roman colony. Now what does that mean? We're going to look at four contextual points. Number one, Rome was more than just an elite club. Rome was an empire. Kinti, I need you to follow. Oh, you got it. You are on fire, girl. Good job. Rome was an empire. Rome was a city that had become very influential and powerful in broadening its rule and reign throughout the known world. If we can please stick the map up there. You can see that Rome's rule stretched as far as England all the way across to Asia, and it brought peace through victory by the edge of a sword. Rome was massive. It's not, it's not just a small city that we know now. It was huge and very influential and very powerful. Second bit of context, uh, contextual um, piece here is that Caesar was Lord. He was literally Lord in the eyes of Roman citizens. It's argued that Rome's most famous ruler was Julius Caesar, who had a long line of Caesars before and after him. But at the time, the central creed of the Roman Empire was that Augustus Caesar, he was Lord, and people worshipped him as that. And by the time the Philippians had received this letter, they knew in their culture in Philippi that Caesar was a legend. He was the boss. That's the dude. That's the one we praise. They saw him as divine and worshipped him and idolized him in such a manner. He was untouchable in the Roman world. So we see Caesar was Lord. The third point on the context here is that the word gospel was used by Romans in that time before Paul had actually written to the Philippians. When we hear the term gospel, we think of Jesus Christ has died for me on the cross, which is not wrong. That is right. But that is only part of a fuller expression of what the gospel actually is. You see, the word gospel, actually we know it as this word good news, but the Greek word is euangelion. Can you say that with me? Great. Now, it don't sound like the only one trying to say that, but euangelion, and basically it means good news. And long before our time and the Philippians' time, the word euangelion meant something more in that space, mainly Messengers would be sent out to different empires and cities to stand up in that city and proclaim the euangelion, the good news, the gospel that Caesar is Lord. And the town would celebrate and throw a party. It was a good thing. You would long for the day where Caesar's um, messengers would come and share the euangelion, share the good news. John Marcoma comments that the euangelion, the word gospel, meant good news about a king coming to power. 
And he quotes and he says that the gospel was a royal announcement. The gospel was the good news, a royal announcement about a king coming to power. So we understand that, right? Fourth part of our context is that Philippi was a Roman colony. And understanding that Philippi was a Roman colony meant it was granted the exact same legal status as Rome. Philippi was Roman soil, baby. If you stepped into Philippi, you were on Roman soil. Red flags everywhere, Roman soldiers everywhere, people doing all sorts of crazy things like they would do in Rome would be happening in Philippi. In 31 BC, Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium, and he assumed the name Augustus, and he rebuilt the city of Philippi. That's where it started. And in that city, he placed retired Roman soldiers there to ensure Philippi's loyalty to Rome, and he established Philippi as a military outpost for Rome. And he also gave this new colony the highest privilege by becoming a Roman provincial municipality. The word there is Ius Italicum, which basically means that the colony of Philippi could act, behave, and have authority the same as what Rome would have in the same way. It would function and operate as if, as if it was in Rome. And what this all means is if you were a Roman citizen or your town was a Roman colony, it meant a great big deal. A big deal. And when Caesar granted in Roman terms this citizenship, what actually he is granting is salvation to the town and those people. To be a Roman citizen meant salvation had knocked on your door. You were set for life. You had the passport that you wanted. You could travel where you needed to go and walk in that authority. When Augustus Caesar granted citizenship, it meant a deep, fierce loyalty in return to the empire. And in return, as a colony, your job was to bring Roman culture to bear itself in and around Philippi. If it had billboards back then, these were the billboards that would be shown in Philippi. Rome, the best city to live by 120 AD. Rome, coming soon. This could be you. It was huge. And I want us to understand the depth of the fact that Rome would literally come and take over and Rome's culture and way of life would completely infuse itself and it would become literally a, a, a city like Rome. One last little contextual nugget for you is a Greek word. And I'm not into lots of Greek words and all that sort of stuff, but it really is helpful for us to unpack something that I believe God might unlock for us today. And it's this word, polytuesta. I have no idea how to say it. I listened to it like a hundred times while prepping. So we're just going to call it the word poly for now. But the first part in verse 27, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, is one word in the Greek, and that is this word poly. But translated for us today, it is to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Whatever happens, live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And so when we, when we read verse 27 again, this is what we unpack. So the, the original text is, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. And in all our context and understanding and translation, whatever happens, live as citizens of the gospel of the King Jesus, not Caesar. Now you can understand why this is a huge moment for the Philippian church hearing this. Imagine the moment. 
the room full of Roman citizens who have lived their lives in allegiance to Caesar as Lord, and they've been standing for the empire, promoting the empire, badges for Rome. And then Paul drops a one-liner that defies Caesar and proclaims Christ as the true king. Can you see how big this must have been? What Paul is calling them to is considered treason. And anyone sitting in that room when the Philippian letter would have been read out would have been in danger upon hearing the news that someone is saying, Jesus is Lord, conduct yourself in a manner worthy to him, not to Caesar. Caesar is not Lord. And this would have been, this would have been mind-blowing. It would have been unsettling. Anyone sitting in that room hearing that the good news, the announcement that Jesus is king and not Caesar would have been gravely unsettled. Now, we needed to understand all of that to see what Paul is implying in verse 27. And this is what Paul is trying to convey. Paul is calling the Philippians to commit treason against their known empire and Caesar so that they would bring God's kingdom, live out that Jesus is Lord, and bring heaven to earth. It was about denying our worldly citizenship and holding fast and bringing to earth our citizenship from heaven. Paul is calling the Philippians and us today to an alternative empire, an alternative gospel, and an alternative colony. Now, what do I mean by that? Number one, Paul is calling the Philippians to an alternative empire. He's calling them to build the kingdom of God, not Rome. Paul uses the Roman Empire as a metaphorical picture to point towards the kingdom of God. And he's calling them to live as citizens of the gospel of Jesus, not Caesar. And the kingdom of God is not interested in building Rome's vision. It's not interested in Rome going to the four corners of the globe. It's interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, going into the four corners of the globe. Acts 1.8, that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, is the vision for taking the gospel into the nations, not that Caesar is Lord. And he's calling all believers to take the gospel to live out that Jesus is Lord in their life. And so right here, we see the Philippians, their understanding of what an empire is and a, and a Lord comes right into a head-to-head with the kingdom of God. And Paul's they're telling them to make a choice. You're either going to build the kingdom of God or you're going to build this earthly kingdom, Rome, Caesar's empire. You see, Paul knew that living as a citizen of the King Jesus meant head-to-head collision with Rome's rule. And Paul, he's not saying something that he's not living out. Back in Acts 17, the Philippian people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard the unlawful customs from Paul being proclaimed that Jesus is King. There are so many ways that we can relate this for us today. Because even as Paul was calling the Philippians to not be building that empire, God is calling us today, what empires are we building? Where are we pledging our allegiance? Are we building worldly empires of money, business, success, career? Are we building an empire of self 
that you are your own kingdom. You are on a trajectory of just making yourself happy. Is your empire all about you? And I also feel that there's an empire of nothing. You're not committed to anything. There's a growing percentage of purposelessness and laziness that's marking the next generation. So I ask you again, what empire are you building? This week I've been reading Oswald Chambers' book. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. And I'm on February 23rd, and he says there, Many of us are interested only in our own goals, and Jesus cannot help himself to our lives. Just think about that. But if we are totally surrendered to him, we have no goals of our own to serve. Friends, I ask you, what story does your life tell about what you've built so far? Is your life caught up in the empires of this world, or are you a citizen of King Jesus contending for the kingdom to come in your life right now. So we see Paul calls the Philippians and God is calling us to an alternative empire. Number two, Paul calls the Philippians to an alternative gospel. What does he mean by that? That we are to live our lives announcing that Jesus is king and not Caesar. This is the big one. Remember the euangelion, the good news, the gospel is the announcement that there's another king and it's not Caesar, that it's Jesus. He is king of kings and lord of lords and it's not Caesar. And what we're learning from Paul is that the gospel is not just that we have been saved by someone who has gone and died for our sins and we're going to go and be in heaven. So not by someone, by Jesus. The gospel is the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord of all. Not just that He's my Savior, but that He is Lord of all. The crucified Messiah is the risen Lord of the universe, and He is on His throne, seated at the right hand of the Father forevermore, and all earthly kingdoms will bow before Him because He is the only true King. That's the gospel. Not just what I receive, but that He is Lord and how I bow my life before Him and pledge my allegiance to Him and live out being a citizen of that King. You see, the standard gospel of Jesus has died for my sins and you'll go to heaven when you die does not get you thrown in prison. Remember, Paul is in prison here. And the reason he gets thrown into prison is because the announcement he lives out with his life is that there's another king who's the king above all kings. And his name is not Caesar. His name is Jesus. And you see, that's why he got thrown into prison. Because Rome would have been okay with the fact that, oh, you, you believe in Jesus? Like that guy who will take your sins away? You're going to go and be with him in heaven? Okay, that's fine. Like, we're happy for you to do that. As long as you don't mess with the here and now. But you see, the gospel is that and that He is Lord. And He is Lord of all our life. And He is Lord of the whole earth. And your Caesar or your Lord or whatever your king is, is not the true king. And when we preach that gospel, that is what Paul is talking about here. That is the gospel of there's another king, Jesus. And He is the one who is Lord, not Caesar. And friends, this one is really important. Why? Because... I want to ask you the question, who is the Lord of your life when other people witness your day-to-day? -day? 
Who is the Lord of your life that people are seeing when they are with you? Do they see the announcement that the King of glory who is Lord over all the heavens and the earth has captured your heart in such a radical way that you bow to no one except Him? Does your life reflect that? Or does your life reflect other things that you put in place of the Lord in your life? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it a certain level of success or certain amount in the bank account or some sort of paradise you're striving for? Or is it Jesus who is the Lord of your life? So we see Paul calls the Philippians to an alternative empire. He calls them to an alternative gospel, the announcement that Jesus is king. And he also calls them to an alternative colony, an outpost for heaven, not Rome. As we unpacked earlier, Philippi was a Roman colony. And your job was simple as a colony. You need to bring Roman culture to Philippi. People need to see that this is no longer Philippi. This is Rome. And to, uh, for us to understand this, we actually need to go to Philippians 3, verses 19 to 20. It's going to be up on the screen, but if you want to open it in your Bible, you can. And Philippians 3 is like a secret little nugget verse that brings us so much insight into the alternative colony that Paul is calling the Philippians to here. Maybe we can put it up on, this, on the screen. And so when Paul speaks in Philippians 3, he's talking here in the first part about those who don't know Christ, and then he transitions into those who know Jesus. He says, their mind is set on, read with me, their mind is set on, but our is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what Paul is implying here is that we as Christ followers who are citizens of the King, are not to set our eyes attached to worldly things, but rather to lift our eyes to heaven where our citizenship comes from. And when we do that, we see that it is placed on us through Jesus Christ and it is piercing through time and will manifest itself in our current world and reality today. And so to live as a citizen of the king means you belong somewhere else but you are bearing witness of that place to the here and now, to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ here and now. That is what it means for us to be citizens of the King. But we got to be careful though, because when we read that we hold citizenship from another place, our future home that is heaven with God, our hearts can be so tempted to just disregard all responsibility for right now and just wait for that to come. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying, hey guys, don't worry about this life. What's to come is great. Just sit back, eat your Doritos, watch your NFL, whatever it is, and uh, just long for what's to come. That's not what he's saying. When he says our citizenship is of heaven, he is saying that we belong somewhere else, but we bring that here into the, the here and now. We're not to drop the responsibility to live in our current reality. Our part is to bring to earth heaven's culture of unconditional love and obedience to the Father right now. So that when people look at your life, they see, oh, you're not promoting this money success, success story in Dubai. 
You're not promoting what it means to have it all, the house in Demac Hills. You're not promoting this life. When we look at you, actually what we see is that you are living for something far greater. You're not content with the earthly things. And we look at your life and it makes us ask the question, where does your hope come from? That's what it means to, be, to live for an alternative colony. Our part is to join with Jesus as he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on as it is in heaven. Your citizenship means you are to be an outpost of heaven right here on earth to reflect and bear witness of that place which I belong. And friends, I want to ask you again, does your life bear witness to that place from which you belong? Is your life set on bringing God's known word that there is a Lord who has saved his people and is to be worshipped forever and you are bringing that into the world today? Or is your hopes of citizenship still in this world? Still trusting for your Canadian or American passport? Still trusting for something that this world will meaninglessly give you but will fade away one day. I'm not having a dig. If God has called you to go, go. But where does your citizenship come from? From heaven, not from earth. So how do we respond? How do we live out this reality that we are citizens of the true king, that we are to live out an alternative empire, an alternative gospel evangelion announcement of the good news that jesus is lord how are we to actually live that out paul gives us some language in the following verses and he actually uses military language to convey an idea across as he gives instructions to the philippians we said earlier that philippi was a military outpost in its beginning and so the people would have known this language paul is using language that they would understand in verse, um, if you can throw it up there on the board, we see it says that Paul uses language like stand firm, striving together without being frightened by those who oppose you. And he's using very front-footed language. And so our first response is, how do we live out being citizens of the king? We do it in community. He's talked so much there about doing it together. Like a Roman soldier who locks arms with other soldiers Standing firm and pushing back against the enemy who brings opposition is how we live out being citizens of the king. There's a war movie called Outpost, and it's a group of soldiers. It's a true story done in like a cinematic effect of these soldiers who are pinned down in this valley by the enemy, and they come extremely close to being beaten, but it's their standing together, locking arms, strengthening one another that brings them the opposition of, over the enemy. And you see, when you watch that movie and read about that story, those soldiers should never have won. But there's an immense amount of confidence and strengthening one receives when locking arms with brothers and sisters in the faith. Our connect groups, our men's ministry, women's ministry, young adults, youth, and all spaces of community in the life of the church are there so that we don't walk alone, are there so that we walk stronger together. If you know my friend Cornell, he's here this morning. He's a large dude. He's a very big boy. And uh, we were in H&M years ago um, 
Robin and him were standing at the door and I was inside paying for something at the counter and this dude just came and cut in front of the line and just looked at me like I was the chopper pushed in front of him. And I looked at him, I said, hey buddy, I was standing here and the guy comes right up into my face and you can tell the guy chose violence when he woke up that morning. Like he was about to come at me and I, I won't lie, my first thought literally was, oh dude, for your sake, I hope you don't see my friend standing at the door. Because if you do, <laughs> I actually want Cornell to stand up so you could see the size of him. But I literally thought, for your sake, bro, I hope my friend hasn't seen you. And if you saw my friend, you would not be doing this right now. And I intentionally chose not to tell Cornell because when I did eventually tell him, he said, Who, where's the guy? Where's the guy? Let me sort him out. And why do I tell you that story? It's because being in community gives us this great strength that we don't have when we're on our own. Being in community gives us a great strength that we don't have when we're on our own. For those who are not in community, maybe you've been hurt, maybe something's happened or you don't understand the importance of community, I don't know what your reason is, but I want you to know that God has fashioned and purposed it so that we do life together because we're stronger when we're spurring one another arm in arm, pushing back the opposition. If you think your faith is strong enough and you don't need brothers and sisters, Everyone has dark days. And when you're alone, the opposition can be frightening. Rather be in community, ready, than wishing I was in community. And so the second way we respond as citizens of the king, how do we live this out? Well, we see the first one was in community. And the second one, it's not an exciting answer. It's suffering for him. Let's read verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And Paul's talking about suffering here, but it's easily misunderstood when we read this. We think of circumstantial suffering. And he's not implying to have joy when, circumst when circumstantial suffering takes place in our life. Like sickness, terminal illness, death, job loss, depression. That's not what Paul is specifically talking about here. And I just want to be sensitive. If that is a place where you are in, in circumstantial suffering, read through the book of Philippians and you'll be greatly encouraged. But Paul is talking specifically about suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the announcement that there is another king. He's talking about building God's kingdom and living out that Jesus is Lord and bringing heaven to earth. He's talking specifically about proclaiming that the Messiah has risen over death and is the Lord over all the earth. And he's talking about announcing with every breath in his lungs and ours that Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel that Paul is talking about. And when we look at Paul's life, he lives it out. It's about denying worldly empires to radically abandon yourself to Jesus. Announcing 24-7 with his life that Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and living out his citizenship from heaven so that it oozes out into society so that the world would see the unconditional love of the Father come to know that there is a God who has created the heavens and the earth and they will stand before him one day. We are living that out as our citizenship before the world and that is what Paul references when he says we are granted suffering for that. And I know that can see, I don't want that. I don't want to suffer. I'm okay 
just living life. I'm okay just being comfortable and being where I'm at. But my friend, you are missing out on your calling as a Christ follower. Paul says that while he's in deep, while he's in prison, he experiences deep joy. When we read through the first verses of uh, from 1 to 26, we don't look at that and think, this sounds like a man who's in prison. I mean, if that was me, you wouldn't get a letter from me because I'd be so depressed. But here's a man who's writing with such joy, rejoicing. I pray, uh, I joyfully remember you in my prayers. And don't look at my, my, my circumstance, rather see it as an opposition for God to bring the kingdom here. Now, don't look at my circumstance. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And what Paul is saying, that my circumstantial things don't matter, that actually what matters is living out the euangelion, the gospel that Jesus is Lord. And when I do that, I might look like I'm suffering in the here and now, but God is bringing his kingdom to earth. And that's what I'm living for. And that gives me deep joy that I don't have to look at my chains and be defined by my circumstances, that I'm defined in my citizenship as a son and daughter of the Most High. Jesus did not say that following him is easy. In fact, he mentioned that following him involved trouble, persecution, and suffering. Following Jesus means picking up our cross, though, and living as citizens of the true king.